0: This is a uh, difficult day for preachers. Uh, In fact, as I said to Janice, uh, this is the one week of the year that I really do not enjoy preaching um, because it is so much to consider. And so I want to start with um, where I think I need to begin. I want to take it as a given uh, that it is far, far better for you and I uh, to know this Triune God to personally know Him, to tacitly know Him, uh, than it is to understand Him in all of His fullness. I take that as a given. Uh, it is far, far better to worship, to love, to obey this triune God, than to master the intricacies of His inner being. Again, I take that as beginning the church has always maintained it is far for better for us to know this god as he has come to be known by us than to master this god because we cannot do that and yet and yet how can we truly know someone and increase our knowledge of that one without coming to know something about them, without coming to understand and appreciate the reality of that one with ever increasing goodness and rightness and truthfulness. Anyhow, so that's what this day is all about. This is the day Uh, the first Sunday of ordinary time that the church has set aside to celebrate the reality of the Holy Trinity. And the reason it has done that and why it's appropriate that this is the day and not any other in the church's year is the very fact that God always reveals himself to us as he acts on our behalf. That's how we have come to know this one. And so having looked at the last seven or 50 days, counting Lent, you go back almost 70 days, we have been looking at the absolute crucial revelation of this God. We have come to look at him in his death, look at him in his triumph, his vindication, look at him in his exaltation, and now in the gifting of his spirit the promise given by the Father. And having come now to the fullness of the reflection on his activity on our behalf, we come to give thanks for the God who has revealed himself in this way. Now that's a mouthful. It really is a mouthful. And this is a mouthful of a God. And so we come now to look at this uh, and to try to get a grasp of who this God is in his inner life. And that's a very difficult thing to do. I want to start where the scriptures start. It's fascinating to me that the text that the church chooses for this day, and there again, we have three options, A, B, and C. We're in year B this year. So we've had these stories about the burning bush and about Nicodemus and about Um, uh, Paul's looking at the Spirit coming in uh, Romans. I just want to look and say, here's how, again, God reveals himself to us. And he does so as he acts on our behalf. That's what the story of the burning bush is all about. It's a great story, but that's really all I want to pick up on. Uh, is to how this God reveals himself to Moses in this way. And remember the story. The context, of course, is that this is a continuation of the story of Genesis. And when God comes to redeem his creation, he chooses one man, Abraham, and says to him, I will create a family from you, and I, through that family I will bring a blessing to all. And so we read through those, the first three generations of the patriarchs. Abraham's life, Isaac's life, Jacob's life. And then we come to the fourth generation, the 12 sons of Jacob. And we read again the story of Joseph and how they come into Egypt to be saved from the famine that God was bringing upon all creation. And then the story ends And Exodus begins, and we read that for 450 years, that family of Abraham had been enslaved by Pharaoh. Just think about that. Four generations into the story, 450 years of slavery. It's not an auspicious beginning. But that's the context into which God appears and calls Moses. Now again, a lovely story. Uh, Moses is an Israelite, we know from the early part of of Exodus chapter one. Uh, He spent the first 40 years of his life as a prince of Egypt. A daughter, adopted daughter of the Pharaoh's daughter, adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter. 40 years in Egypt. And now he spent the last 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness of Sinai. 40 years of herding sheep. But then we read that one day, one day, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush, bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. God acts. He comes in and does something physically in the world. Moses looks at this and goes, this is not usual. And then we read when Moses responded and said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. God spoke to him. So there's the pattern. God initiates, he does something the angel of the Lord initiates on the Lord's behalf and then it is the Lord himself who speaks. We don't quite know, did the Lord speak through the angel? Did the Lord speak as the angel? Even in this story, there's an ambiguity in the very being of Gahat. He speaks and he called out Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he reveals that he is indeed the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. And he has come to raise him up to set his people free. Now that's the glory of the story, but it's only the beginning of that story. Remember what is the climatic moment in the story of the burning bush. Moses. Ask God saying, all right, you've given me this task. I'm going to go back to this people that I haven't lived with in 80 years. And they're going to ask me, he says, when I go to the people, if I come to the people, who's going to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Do you even know him? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. God reveals his name to this shepherd. He had not done that to Abraham. He had not done that to Isaac, had not done that to Jacob nor to Joseph. This is a further revelation of the very identity and being of this God, the same God who has been involved in the lives of all those saints. God reveals more of himself as he acts for us in time and history. And these are great moments. But you see the pattern. This is what the scriptures reveal about God. And if that is the case, why are we surprised that when God acts most decisively in human history, I mean most climatically in human history, that God reveals himself to us most fully? And that's what we see in the life of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. We see not only God acting for us in human history, but revealing himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what our story of John 3 is all about, this great story of Nicodemus. And again, you can see and press it in this way. We have Nicodemus, uh, who we read, came by night. Uh, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews who came by night to Jesus and was utterly deferential to him. Saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We have to believe that because we see what you do. We know, the royal we, that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." Now again, Uh, A Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, one of the Sanhedrin, uh, the 70 rulers of the Jewish people. Uh, Jesus, in the midst of his conversation, calls him the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher, the teacher of Israel. So you have this rabbi, this great teacher, this Pharisee of all Pharisees being drawn to Jesus, having to come to check him out, because this Jesus is absolutely unique. He draws people to him, either to love him or to hate him, but you've got to deal with him. So he comes, but he comes at night because it is a dangerous thing to do, especially for a ruler of the Jews. And so he comes and he says, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just needing to be here. I need to say, who are you and what are you doing? And Jesus just cuts through all the red tape. (laughs) And he says this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then as Nicodemus blusters, how can that be? Jesus reiterates and says it in a different way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we scratch our heads and say, What is he saying? What is he saying? Nicodemus knew what he was saying, he understood it really well. And we need to go back and read the first three chapters of John to actually understand it for ourselves. The Jews were seeking the kingdom of God, the day where God would come again to finalize, to finalize his redemption of his people so his new heavens and new earth would be born. This new creation happened. That's what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus is saying, you won't even see it. You cannot enter it unless you are born again, unless you are born of water and the spirit. But John, as he tells the story, tells us exactly what he's meaning. You go back into this first chapter of John, and John says, I won't tell you who this one is. I'll tell you up front, even though Nicodemus has to discover it for himself. He says, this is the word who was in the beginning the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. This is coming from the very being of God, this this very complex being of God. And this Word became flesh in this man and dwelt among us, the reality of the Incarnation. And he says, and this one, He says, nobody has ever seen God. This is how the prologue ends. But the only God, this Word made flesh, who is at the Father's side. The Father now is part of the Trinity. He has made him known. That's what the coming of the Son is to do is to make known the fatherhood of God and also the Godhead himself who cannot be seen is visibly now here among us as it's one. It's a remarkable statement. John goes on in the second chapter to talk about the raising up of John the Baptist, this great prophet of God. After 500 years of silence, prophetic silence, John bursts upon the scene. And again, attracts all of Israel to himself. And they question him as to why you are doing what you're doing, this utterly unique baptism for the remission of sins. And John says two really classic things. He says, look, I'm doing this because I've been told to do it. He says, I myself did not know this one who was to come, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I was told to baptize because I was told that in and through this baptism, I would recognize that one and I would tell Israel about him. That's what he's saying. And then he says in the midst of that second chapter, that the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said, I saw and I spoke. Jesus is this one. John goes on to say that Jesus immediately began to call together his disciples, this new Israel around him, and then he enters the temple and cleanses it. That's how chapter 2 ends. He acts as this one who has come to reclaim his temple and to cleanse it. And then Nicodemus comes by night. Jesus is just looking at Nicodemus and saying, I know why you're here. I've lived this already, I know why you're here. Do you accept the testimony of John? Do you accept the testimony of my Father? Will you believe that I am the one who must come so that I can baptize with the Spirit? If you want to see the kingdom, you deal with me, the King. You must accept John in the water in order to get the spirit because I am the one who gives that spirit. <laughs> That's who I am. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, and here I am, <laughs> that whoever believes in him becomes aligned with him, should not perish but have eternal That's what that story is all about. It's just saying again, when God has acted most decisively in human history, he reveals himself most fully to human understanding. And Jesus is saying, the Son is here revealing that there is a Father in God, and this Son is here to grant the Spirit of God, and this is the God who's come to save you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the revelation of God in history. The greatest action of God reveals the greatest data, can we say that, about the Godhead, the revelation of himself. And as we are drawn into that action, as we respond to that invitation, we are caught up in his very life, caught up in his very activity. And that's the reality of that first generation. You read through the New Testament and you understand that they knew themselves to be caught up in the life of this triune God. You can't read the epistles without understanding that they knew themselves to be caught up in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet this one was still the single God of Israel, the single God of the Shema. It was in their very bloodstream, it was in their worship. They believed, they worshiped the Son, they were led by the Spirit, they prayed to the Father, and yet this was one God, not three. It was at the core of their experience and core of their life. They lived it, they prayed it, they wrote it, they believed it. And we inherit that testimony. Now, the reality is the church down through the ages has struggled with this revelation. In fact, the apostolic fathers, the apostolic age that goes from basically the close of the New Testament era right through to the 4th and 5th centuries uh, truly struggled with the reception of the tradition of the triunity of God. Uh, This is the age of the heresies being raised up. Uh, The reality of course, as they struggled with these new ideas and discovered that if they indeed were false ideas, they needed to be addressed because it led to false worship and it led to a false way of living. And so they did. And it was very, very difficult to come to terms because this is not easily grasped, not easily articulated by anyone. But there is our creedal heritage. And they hammered these things out back and forth, back and forth for 300 years. And then the church agreed on these things and lived by these things for about 1,500 years, right through to the high Middle Ages in the beginning of the Reformation and into the early modern period. The reality was this, though, in the age of the high Middle Ages, there was a heck of a lot of spiritual theological speculation. Um, There was a lot of thinking about how, you know, how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin kind of stuff. It really became divorced from the life of the church. And so when the Reformation happened and sort of blew up all of the settled understandings of the church and gave birth to um, the Enlightenment age where indeed the secular age began and began to question all these things, the life and the understanding of the Trinity really fell into disrepute. And for the last, for the 200 years, 17th and 18th centuries, there was a real attack on any kind of understanding that this could be true. But in the last two centuries, 19th and 20th especially, uh, we've seen a revival of Trinitarian theology. But the danger is this, most of us is counter to the classic understanding of the creedal, church. It's really quite remarkable. I must confess, I did not know this history until I began to read again uh, in my own books as to the history. We tend to forget these things and we forget them to our peril. And so I have found that it is absolutely vital for us to return yet again to the settled convictions of the Apostolic Fathers. There is nothing new under the sun. The same heresies spring up over and over and over again. And they are springing up in our own day in different ways with the same kind of understanding. So I have read, if you're wanting uh, a helpful book, uh, I wouldn't say an easy book, but I would say a helpful book uh, on the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, Stephen Holmes, downright the best, easiest to get to, not really easy to say, but I would highly, highly recommend it. Let me just try to summarize some of his thinking. Here are four statements that I think we need to understand that the apostolic fathers agreed to with their lives. First is this, they believed in what they called the very oneness and simplicity of God. Simplicity of this God that they worship. At his essence, he was one and simply one. And by that they meant, Uh, He was simply one in nature, not three. In his very being, his essence, he was one, not three. In his will, he was one, not three. And indeed, in his personality, as we need and use that term now, his personality, he was one and not three, and yet in three persons, as they go on to say. But this was the absolute bedrock for them. They would not, could not move off the simplicity of the Godhead. The Shema got it right. There is one God, simple in God's essence, at the core of his being. The second thing they were really solid on was the frailty of human language. The impossibility of the finite creature to even grasp and articulate the infinite greatness of their creation. They believed with every fiber of their being that there was a great divide between the uncreated and that which is created. Between the God who creates and everything else, ourselves included, in the creation. There is an ontological gulf that we cannot cross, and it's only by the grace of God, the uncreated, that we can come to know this one. And so their humility in the ability to think these things through is palpable they do not believe that we in our finite nature can actually grasp anything about this God unless this God is gracious enough to reveal himself to us. But he says, Lord, have mercy, he has. And he has through his created work, his creation, and through his own self-revelation in the story of Scripture. The names that God has given to us, I am that I am and the names of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So they took these self-revelations of God with the utmost seriousness and tried to figure out what can we say about these things. For these are the things we must say about them. The third thing, the three hypostases, as the Greek came. Uh, our English, we return as persons, but there's a danger in that because our modern understanding of person is not their ancient understanding of person. All they understood by this uh, word, this hypostasis, was this was, there were distinctions within the Godhead distinctions that were not independent of one another, but intradependent of each other. Uh, this again, coming out of the self-revelation of God, they discovered that these things had to be eternal. They weren't modal, they weren't just temporary. God didn't say, his oneness saying, well now because I need to come and save, I will become the son. Now that the son has done his deal, I will become the spirit. He said, no, these things must be part of the eternal nature the essential nature of this one. But they are real distinctions. But the reality of the distinctions is not in nature. It's not about the essence of God, nor is it about the activity of God. But it's all about the relationships within the Godhead. And all about the origins of those relationships. That's as far as they would go in speaking about the mystery of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything else was speculation. You see, the Father is only the Father because He eternally begets the Son. The Son is only the Son because He's eternally begotten by the Father, not made, not created. <laughs> the Spirit is only the Spirit because He is breathed out by the Father. He is. Uh, processes from the Father, and he processes to the Son. The Son receives him and returns him fully to the Father, and therefore he binds the three together into one. But the distinctions of the relationships and the originality, both the Son and the the Spirit come from the Father, but that does not mean they're after the Father, because they are eternally given. There is only that distinction that would go. One commentator uh, stated that the beauty of this teaching is that they discovered that they could say that the Father, Son, and Spirit talks about not what God is, not his essence, but how God is. How God relates even within himself and then how that relationship involves us. And that's a good distinction. It is only about the relationships within the Godhead that they would say there is any distinctions within God himself. Back to the simplicity. And the fourth thing they would stress, of course, is that this one God acts as one. But when he acts, he acts as Father, Son, and Spirit. He always initiates. The action begins with the Father. It is carried through by the Son, and it is perfected by the Spirit. And that's what we see in human history. That's what we see in salvation history. That's what we see written in the scriptural story. And when you and I respond again to that action when we hear the gospel speaking about all that god has done for us and through that doing has revealed himself to us when we say yes to that, we are not only caught up in god's doing but we are caught up in god's being who this god is and how this god is Within himself and now involving us. Beyond that, they would not go. And we need to remind ourselves of these things. I was pleased to hear that uh, Gregory. in speaking about the realities of these things, said to the church, that it is far, far better for you to preach the economy, how the Trinity has made himself known, than to get into this speculation about his interview. And as a preacher, I go, I get to do that next week. Right? And yet it is absolutely vital, because we can be led astray so easily by forgetting what the church has learned through its history, through its painful history, that we can easily find ourselves being deflected from that simple gospel into a different gospel. So these things are not unimportant. They are foundationally helpful to get us into how do we live with this God, this life that he's called us to live. So in the end, how do we respond to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? I would say in three ways. First, with joy. With joy. Because we come to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. We are caught up in his doing and in his being, and we worship him. That's how we begin to think about and to live with this one. We do it with joy and worshiping with joy. And we come though with humility, utter humility, reminding ourselves that we in our finite ways, and especially our fallen finite ways, will never be able to comprehend fully the infinite greatness of His God. And yet we come to receive with joy that which He has revealed of Himself to us. And we hold on to that. And then thirdly, we come discerningly, prayerfully. The Apostolic Father says, This does not come simply by thought, it comes by prayer and contemplation. It's as we worship truly, we begin to think truly. And so we come discerning, we come prayerfully to these things, asking that this one would protect us in our working out of our life with I would simply ask you today to spend the moments in utter awe at the God who has revealed himself in the life and death and resurrection of his Son, and then come with joy to receive, as if from his own hands, the gift of himself. Let us pray.